Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by lynda.com. lynda.com is the easy and affordable way to learn where you can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, and lots and lots more. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to get a free seven-day trial. If you've ever wanted to learn something new, what are you waiting for? Pragmatic is also sponsored by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic for a free audiobook download. We'll talk more about the sponsors during the show. I'm your host, John Chidgey, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Vic Hudson. How you doing, Vic? I'm good, John. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited before we get started to uh, that I'm I'm on my new audio setup, and I say new because uh, it's brand spanking new. Actually, brand spanking new is that is that an Australianism, or is do you know what that mean, what I mean when I say that? Um, I, I I've heard it before. It's it, it's commonly used over yeah, here. Yeah, good. Probably not quite as much as it used to be, but. You're definitely not the first person I've ever heard. Oh, that's a relief. I just I worry sometimes that I, I speak sometimes in some Australianism. So anyway, there you go. Just check, just checking, <laughs> just checking litmus test. Anyway, so yeah, I now have um, thanks to Dan Benjamin of Five by Five and his absolutely brilliant uh, podcasting equipment guide, uh, brought over from the days of Hive Logic and of course more recently updated for Five by Five. Uh, in Jim Metzendorf as well. Uh, I did a bit of research and I had been using an Audio-Technica ATR2100 USB microphone, but I've upgraded that now to a Heil PR40, uh, which is a dynamic microphone. Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. And No, you're okay. And I'm also running that through an Onyx... Uh, Blackjack, which is uh, by, made by uh, Mackie, and uh, that's a USB interface, and uh, it's got a 24-bit uh, ADC in it, which is better than the 16-bit that came in the uh, ATR2100. Uh, the frequency response on the Heil is much better, and as well as the dynamic range. And uh, I done, I've done some test recording, and uh, it is just lovely. So hopefully, hopefully, this uh, the podcast is. Uh, that little bit slightly nicer on your ears. In addition to that, I've also I'm also going to be starting to edit in uh, Logic Pro X, which seems to be um, the most favoured uh, podcast editing tool out there at the moment. So, yeah, all, uh, all all about upgrades at the moment. Mind you, I'm still using the original shock mount, which isn't designed for it, and uh, the uh, pop filter and boom arm. So, and the boom arm's struggling because this mic is something like twice as heavy as the other one. But anyway. So there you go. That's uh, that's inside podcasting. Enough of that. Okay. So just another f- a bunch of quick reminders. Once again, yes, we are live streaming the show. Uh, there is an IRC chat room on freenode.net, but if you go to the URL techdistortion.com slash live, you can access the stream there, <clears throat> or you can use the embedded IRC chat box to join at that URL. Uh, we have a Q and A segment after every show during the course of the show and the live stream. If you have any questions, you can pose them with uh, exclamation mark Q A, and then we'll try and address them at the end. <clears throat> No, I am not dying. At least I don't think so. Uh, I am, unfortunately, coming down with something. 
so I apologize if I cough and splutter during the show. Um, ordinarily, I have a muting thing. I'll try and edit that out later. My editing thing is not working on the latest beta of Yosemite. Yikes. Anyway, that's fine. Yeah, I know I'm running, I'm running a, a beta operating system. Uh, I think the GM just went out, actually. <laughs> it did last night. Yeah, anyway. Well, that's not available hey. in the public. The public beta 4 went out, which I'm sure is very similar. But in any case, whatever. That's fine. Okay, also, Showbot is running, so to capture title suggestions. So, again, uh, exclamation mark uh, um, S for title suggestions, if you would like to participate in that. Once again, the show is doing a regular recording, same time every week. So, if you want to tune in live, you now can. And it's the same time every week. Okay. Right, that's enough preamble. So, today, we're going to talk about Radio, specifically amateur radio. And one of the reasons that I want to talk about this is because it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Historically, uh, it's been a big part of my life. It's what got me into electrical engineering in the first place and set me on the path that I'm on to now. And I dare say that if I didn't get into radio, that I wouldn't be, probably wouldn't be podcasting right now. So you probably wouldn't be hearing my voice. So if you like the domino effect and and, and that sort of thing. Well, you know, this is one of the big dominoes in my in my life professionally and personally. So it's a big deal to me. And I wanted to talk about it because there's a lot of people out there that they say, oh, yeah, amateur radio or ham radio. Yeah, yeah, I know what that is. And they actually don't really know all the different aspects of it, what's interesting about it. Uh, so I thought it'd be worth talking about. Now, I have talked about radio previously on episode 5, which is the next ubiquitous thing. I'd refer you to that episode if you are interested in learning a little bit more about Marconi and the basics of broadcast. But we'll quickly touch on some of that now, just as a quick refresher as to like what radio is and, and so on. But before I do that, just a little bit about you know my history uh, with radio. So I actually started on CB radio when I was 14 years old, uh, you know, with a very cheap radio. It was a... Um, Oh dear, very cheap. <laughs> uh, it was a, a Uniden um, a PC55, and uh, I picked it up really cheap. And uh, I didn't have a decent antenna. I made built my own antenna. I had a, an old piece of coax that was the wrong kind. So it was 75-ohm coax. It should have been 50-ohm coax. And unfortunately, that caused lots of problems with my poor little radio, not understanding then what I do now. Um, you know, I killed that radio. So, you know, it been six months' time, I had to get another one. Anyway, so I moved on from that and, um, you know, got better radios and learnt more, built better antennas and so on and so forth. Poured all of my, all of my uh, pocket money and so on into it and, uh, and so on and so forth. Met lots of interesting people. And uh, then I decided in my first year of university that, it was, that I wanted to become an amateur radio operator. So I had two choices at that point. I could have, have waited till the end of my degree and gotten the advanced theory gratis so if you show up with your advanced degree with sorry your advanced degree got if you show up with an engineering degree electrical engineering degree and you wave that at the right people they would give you a, the a pass on the advanced theory exam without you having to sit it ah which was kind of nice yeah but me being impatient and well you know hey who would have thought i was impatient back then just like i am now hey there you go um anyway being impatient, I decided, no, nope, not going to wait. So I studied and sat my advanced theory exam anyway, even my first year of uni, because I couldn't be, couldn't be bothered waiting. I didn't want to wait. Uh, also, I had to sit the regulations, 
um, which I note I actually passed my advanced theory uh, on the first um, on the first sitting, but I actually failed my regs on the first sitting. Um, yeah, whoops, I failed or something. God. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I had to sit my regulations a second time. Whoops. Uh, anyway, I also went for uh, back in the day, back in those times, that was ninety four. Uh, back at that time, Morse code was a requirement. So there were two Morse code. There was uh, novice and there was advanced. And novice was five words a minute, send, receive. And advanced was uh, 10 words a minute, send, receive. Got it. So I, I ha- in order to get my what they call the full call amateur radio operator license, full call unrestricted, then you had to sit advanced theory, regs, and you know advanced uh, Morse, which was 10 words a minute. So I also learned the didars. And again, failed on my first attempt at, at uh, 10 words a minute. Uh, most people are smart and they, they go, they start up five and they work their way up to 10. But me, no, stupid me. Anyway. You went for the so gusto. I, uh, I did. I did. Stupid me. But anyway, that's fine. That's fine. I sat on my second to go and uh, yeah, I absolutely blitzed it on my second attempt. I walked in there and read the sentence off and, you know, guy shook my hand and said, nice. So there you go. No mistakes. Flawless. Anyway. On the second attempt, first attempt. So as I often mention, and some people have said, hey, it's bingo time. John said the word Nortel on the podcast. Well, there you go. Here we go again. (laughs) So yes, I worked for Nortel Networks, um, and I was in the RF hardware design group between 99 and 2001. Uh, I worked on the HF modernization project for Boeing for between 2001, 2003. So two years on that. Uh, more recently in telemetry systems, which are based in, you know, which is radio-based telemetry, uh, the long-reach uh, sewer telemetry system design, the Douglas Northern uh, water treatment plants, uh, Townsville telemetry system design, and I also did an option study for the Tarong pipeline, which is the pipeline that runs from, uh, uh, it doesn't matter, anyway, for the Tarong power station, it's about 120 kilometer long uh, water pipeline for the cooling water. And uh, that telemetry system did the telemetry option study on that. So that, that's nice my background experience. So a real quick recap of what radio is. So radio refers to... Uh, uh, well, uh, radio RF is uh, radio frequency, energy. And that refers to an electromagnetic wave. And depending upon... And all radio waves are essentially sine waves. And those sine waves, travel sine waves, and those sine waves, uh, depending upon their period and therefore their frequency... Uh, depends on, you know, the band, what we call the band, the frequency band um, that you transmit information over. So, uh, ranging from about three hertz up to three hundred gigahertz. Now, the formula for a wave is V equals F lambda, which is velocity equals frequency times wavelength. Therefore, from the frequency, you can figure out uh, the wavelength, and the wavelength of at three hertz is a uh, hundred thousand kilometers, which is pretty big. Uh, and 300 gigahertz is one millimeter. So there's a huge variety of wavelengths, and that that that's important when it comes to antenna design, which we'll get to later. But anyway, so uh, EM waves travel through space. They're not dependent on air. They're not compression waves. So anyway, the velocity of uh, electromagnetic waves is the speed of light, uh, which is three times ten to the eight meters per second, which is you know a bit zippy. Uh, electromagnetic waves exist perpendicular to each other, so you'll have uh, in the uh, the E plane and the H plane, what they refer to as the E and the H plane. So uh, in the E plane, you'll have the electric, say, and in the H plane, you'll have the magnetic field. And each each field sort of follows the other. And it's sort of hard to describe that, but one the dis- 
it's hard to describe. But anyway, um, I'm going to link to eventually put a presentation up on the site that I did for um, uh, for a company I worked for. But electromagnetic waves only exist where they both exist. So if you kill the electric field or the magnetic field, you'll kill the EM wave, uh, which is, of course, uh, the title of the first episode of Pragmatic was Faraday's Cage. So this uh, Michael Faraday came up with this idea of a cage that you could use to kill the electric field, and hence uh, the, electromagnetic f- uh, the electromagnetic waves would uh, stop passing through that through that cage. So anything inside the cage would not radiate out. Anything outside the cage could not radiate in through electromagnetic waves, which was useful for testing and, and so on and so forth. When we talk about radio, we talk about different frequencies for different purposes. And a lot of it comes to do with permeability. And permeability not in the magnetic sense, uh, but permeability in the sense of how much it'll penetrate physical objects. And I say penetrate, you know, it's it's partly penetrate, it's partly bend. Because... You know, wave theory. You know, wave theory suggests that as waves pass through, pass an edge, that they can actually diffract and bend around that edge. And not just that, as they travel through mediums of different. Um, well, it's a good way to think of it as like density, but it's not density. But anyway, it's a good way to think about. It, is that you can actually bend a radio signal uh, through 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 a um, through charged particles, for example, and. An example of that is the ionosphere, which we'll get to in a minute. <clears throat> so the idea is that waves don't just travel in straight lines. You can get them to bend. You can't get them to bend too much, and the higher frequency you go, the less likely they are to bend. So lower frequency signals are better for that, which is one of the reasons that AM radio started at low frequencies. So between about 535 kilohertz to about 1.7 megahertz, that's where AM radio sits. But the problem with that, of course, is that you know, AM radio, because you've got such a small snippet of spectrum, you don't have a massive bandwidth that you can encode information on, like audio. So as a result, if you want to have lots of radio stations, you've got, each one's got to have a very narrow frequency that they operate on, which means that the quality of the audio is going to be much less. Yeah. The other problem, of course, down that, that region of the spectrum is that you get a lot of atmospheric noise. So when there's a lightning strike, you get lots of low-frequency EM pulses. I mean, you're going to get like background galactic radiation no matter where you are, what frequency you're at, and you're just going to get it. It does but, tend to travel further than FM, though, doesn't it? Yes, okay, exactly, and that's why. Yes, and that's why they chose it because what happens is it, it tends to bend with the Earth a lot more so, whereas FM is high frequency and therefore doesn't. Well, it does a little bit, but it doesn't really. So, the propagation of EM waves is dependent upon their frequency through the atmosphere. So, the most coveted parts of the um, mobile phone spectrum traditionally have been the lower frequency. So in Australia, for example, Telstra have access to the lower frequencies, so 700 megahertz to 850 megahertz spectrum. So anything under one gigahertz is going to get much better building penetration because of its lower frequency. The way to think about building penetration is that if you look at the wavelength and then you look at the size of an aperture like a window, think of how much of that energy in terms of its wavelength could actually penetrate the window if that electromagnetic wave was pointed approximately at the window. So the idea is that the lower the frequency, um, you will get a much larger probability that energy will get in through that aperture than you're going to get if it's a much higher frequency signal, which is going to be far more precisely directed, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Such that the, the sum total amount of energy is going to be much less. And once once the, the wavelength is so small, um, you know, it's just, it comes down to just luck, um, like reflections and, and just pure chance as to whether or not you get a signal. 
But, you know, assuming you're not living inside Faraday's cage, let's say. Anyhow. <clears throat> so those um, I was saying about Tales from the Low Frequencies, they went for that stuff because, you know, it's got far better. It was the old analog network that they then shifted across to what they call NextG, which is running uh, CDMA. And, well, I say CDMA. It's... Um, it's uh, LTE, but anyway, uh, these days. So anyway, I guess what I'm getting at is that as you go higher up in frequency, that's when things start to go wrong in in that respect. But then, of course, things get better for things like satellite where you want them to pass through the atmosphere unmolested so without any ionospheric um, interference. So that's all trade-offs. Once you go really, really high frequency, of course, uh, electromagnetic waves cease to be... Um, cease to be interpreted that way because uh, then we start reaching... Uh, Visible spectrum, but uh, not not talking about that. That's uh, another story. Uh, so radio waves also have another problem. Uh, it's called the inverse square law because essentially uh, electromagnetic waves uh, emanate as a bubble, uh, and in theory, there's a point uh, there's a, there's a point in space that they call uh, an isotropic radiator. An isotropic radiator is a theoretical antenna, which is simply a point in space that radiates equally in all directions. So if you can imagine that radiating equally in all directions that's expanding like a perfect sphere. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that at any distance, let's say a distance from the center point, if you are distance X from the center point, and then you go a distance of 2X from the center point, then the overall amount of energy at any one point will be one, one quarter because it's one over two squared. If you go three times the distance X, then it'll be one over three squared or a ninth. That's the inverse square law. Simply because the same amount of energy is being spread over a much larger area. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't escape that. Which is why, of course, you know, apart, beyond the fact that the isotropic radio doesn't actually exist, you know, the, the simplest form of an antenna that you can build is actually a dipole. And a dipole has 2.14 dB of gain over an isotropic radiator. So if you assume that an isotropic radiator is a theoretical, you know, uh, starting point, and that's all well and good, you understand that that's why you want directional antennas because you want to be able to focus that energy in in one specific direction, which is the whole point of an antenna. Well, it's the whole point of a directional antenna. <laughs> you don't want to waste signal going in directions that you don't ever care to receive it at anyway. Exactly right. Yes, precisely. So unless, of course, you're building an omnidirectional antenna, which is like a vertical antenna, you know, the idea with that, of course, is that that'll transmit and receive equally in all directions. But, you know, the, tr- the truth is that, um, you know, that's boring. But we'll talk about it anyway. All right, so getting the, getting the signal to, from the radio to the antenna, uh, use the, we use something they call a transmission line. And transmission line's sole purpose is to not lose power. So to take the signal that's generated at the radio and then transfer that to the antenna without losing any of that signal. Obviously, there's no such thing as a perfect transmission line, but the two the, there's, there's essentially three most common transmission lines in use. The first one is the good old-fashioned ladder line. Now, I'm assuming that you know what I'm talking about when I say ladder line. I think so. Old TV set? Yeah, old TV sets. They had this thing. It's like two, two uh, black wires, and they were joined every so often with a bit of thick, thick black plastic. And if you looked at it and you held it up, it looked like a ladder. Um, in later years, they would encapsulate the entire thing and would just sometimes it was made out of clear plastic, but more often than not, it was black. Anyway, um, ladder line is what's referred to as a, uh, as a balanced transmission line. And it was favoured for quite some time, but the truth is it's very prone to interference. 
So the next most common type is coaxial cable. That's an unbalanced transmission line. The idea is that you have a common conductor in the center, an insulator, and then you wrap that around with a shield. And that shield is then wrapped in an insulator itself. So coaxial cable is by far and away the most common transmission line for connecting antennas to radios. When you go up higher in frequency, that starts to fall apart, and you're far better off going with something that's far more cool, something called waveguide. And waveguides, what they do is they only really are effective in terms of their physical size once you get up to you know multiple gigahertz of wavelength. And waveguides essentially uh, bounce the radio signal from one end to the other. Fascinating idea, but it actually does work. So to utilize electromagnetic waves for, for carrying information, the concept, you have to understand a concept of resonance. So if I have a radio, the radio is a source of, of radio energy. That radio, that RF energy is oscillating at a certain frequency. You know, let's say it's CB, it's, it's CB radio, you know, HF CB radio, which operates at 27 megahertz. So that's going to oscillate at whatever frequency, uh, 27 megahertz. And uh, in order for you to, yeah, funny, I just said it, didn't I? The funny thing is, it's the best analogy is the tuning fork. Now, have you ever done that experiment at school where you've got two identical tuning forks and you hold one up in the air, you tap the other one to get it to vibrate, and then you hold them right next to each other? I have not. I've heard about it, though. Okay. Well, the idea is that what happens is the sound compression waves from the one that's vibrating, what they do is they travel through the air to the one you're holding next to it, and it starts to vibrate. They call that a sympathetic vibration or resonance. And it's supposed to match, right? Yes, that's right. And that's because that's the natural frequency of vibration of that tuning fork. It's exactly the same thing with an antenna, except, of course, with electromagnetic waves. So what you do is you tune, or they sort of tune, quote-unquote tune, I'm doing air quotes, tune, your antenna uh, to a specific frequency to get the maximum amount of gain out of that antenna. Because if it's not in tune, what will happen is you're going to get power reflected back to the radio. So the idea is, think of the power transfers. If I've got 10 watts at my radio and I have a transmission line going out to an antenna, if that antenna is off by you know some percent, then I won't deliver 10 watts directly to the antenna. I'm going to lose some of my transmission line, of course, but I'm going to get power reflected back from my antenna back into the radio. And that's a bad thing, because if you're, <laughs> especially with silicon... Because of silicon, it doesn't like the heat. So all that power that's not being dissipated because of a mismatch, that's bad. I mean, you'll uh, burn sorry. out the radio. You will, and that's exactly what happened with my first CB radio. If you recall, you know, about fifteen twenty minutes ago when we started, I said I'd, I, I had the wrong coax. I had I built my own antenna. I had no idea what I was doing, um, and I destroyed my my first radio. I, I blew the final transistors because. Um, the final stage transistor amplifiers because what was happening was I had such a bad mismatch all a lot of power was being directed back I was supposed to be delivering I don't know 1 watt 5 watt radio I forget which what it was I think it was a 5 watt radio um, and of which I'd be lucky if 1 watt was actually getting out so of the antenna because it wasn't tuned wasn't matched and it was the wrong bloody transmission line it was just a, a joke and that's okay I was 14 and I was still learning I learnt the hard way anyway <clears throat> so uh, when we measure signal and loss, we measure it in decibels, uh, which is a ratio, uh, typically of power. So, you know, one milliwatt, for example, um, be reference is the reference for what we, what's typically referred to as dBm, and uh, a dBm is, a, is essentially a power measurement. So we'll say, okay, well, I've got a twenty, I've got a five watt radio. My antenna gives me um, three 
three um so 20 so 20 let, let, let's um go with one milliwatt because the numbers are in front of me i'm not going to do this in my head at four in the morning uh so a one milli one milliwatt radio is as a zero dbm source so if i've got a zero dbm source and i've got a three db gain antenna then that i'm going to get a total of you know three dbs worth of of uh of power output, which I can then convert back into milliwatts if I want to. And the reason we work in dB is that it's, uh, well, it's, it's very helpful for other things. So when I talk about gain, I'll be talking about gain in decibels, power, uh, typically in, uh, in dBm. Uh, okay. <clears throat> okay. So that gives you a common scale. Yes, exactly. Okay. Everything's normalized onto a common scale. That's right. Okay. So, um, antenna polarization, uh, vertical, horizontal. So, if you have a vertical antenna, then essentially what you what you're doing is you're taking a dipole, which is uh, which is essentially a straight line. The idea of a dipole is that you have a half wa- half wavelength. So, let's say that your 27 megahertz of wavelength is around about 10 meters long. So, half of that is uh, five meters. So, you cut that in half again. So, you've got two quarter wavelengths, and they're fed in the center with the with the uh, your coaxial cable uh, through a device called a ballon, which is a balanced to unbalanced um, uh, transformer. If you're doing it right, well, I say if you're doing it right. Anyway, uh, and the point is that uh, that particular design is the most basic antenna. But what you want to do if you want to go vertical is you want to turn that on its end. And what you can do is you can use the ground as a mirror. So you chop off the bottom half of the antenna and you have a quarter wavelength above the ground. And that's vertical. So you'll see a vertical antennas all over the place. Uh, you'll see them on cars, mm-hmm. you know, you know, everywhere. Well, maybe you won't see them as often on cars these days, but you know, those are vertical antennas. Now, I, the, the most basic form is a quarter wavelength, but there's other ones like this three eighth wave, five eighth wave. You can load these things up. I'm not going to go into all that detail about those sorts of antennas. I just want to do the basics, and then we'll get into amateur radio. So anyway. So that's vertical polarization. Horizontal polarization, you know, well, that should be obvious, is that you've got the antenna, let's say it's a dipole, and it's mounted horizontally above the ground. Everything's relative to the ground, of course, in the, at the moment. So why is this important? It's important to understand because if you've got a vertical antenna and you're going to another vertical antenna, then you're going to have a polarization match. If you have a horizontal going to a vertical antenna or vice versa, you are going to have a polarization mismatch. And a polarization mismatch can cost you 20 dBs worth of energy. That's quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So to overcome the problem of waves bending and mutating and doing all that other good and bad stuff, if you're doing line of sight transmission, you want to go polarization to polarization. So let's say I'm on one side of town, but you're on the other side of town, direct line of sight you want to go vertical to vertical or horizontal to horizontal if you can to get the maximum uh, signal. If you're going if you're going via ionospheric propagation where things get bent out of shape and twisted around, well, that's probably not so big a deal. Although it probably it could it could gain you a few decibels here and there. The truth is, though, if you've got a television uh, broadcast station, you don't have any of that. So what you're going to do is you don't know whether or not the TV antenna is going to be vertically or, or horizontally polarized. So what are you going to do? Because those little rabbit ears on the TV sets could be at whatever angle you choose. Usually it's some diagonal angle relative to the earth. So what do you do? Well, they came up with this idea of circular polarization, actually, uh, which is also used in space transmission because space has no concept of ground. There's no up or down or left or right or any of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You're just in space. Anyway. (laughs) 
Anyway, yeah. So, uh, circular polarization is essentially a rotating EM wavefront, and that is so hard to describe in words. I'm going to leave it there, but just trust me, it is. So, you can have two kinds: left-hand um, po- um, circular, right-hand circular. And uh, a variant of circular polarization is elliptical polarization. Same idea. It's just that the uh, uh, essentially the x and y axes of the wavefront are somewhat squished. Anyway. Okay. Same kind of idea, uh, left-hand circular, right-hand circular polarization, uh, insofar as if you get a mismatch. So if you've got um, LCP um, transmission going to an RCP antenna, you're going to lose uh, 20 dB and vice versa. So, of course, you know you can't win, right, no matter what you do. But the difference is if you go from uh, an LCP or an RCP to a vertical or horizontally polarized antenna, you only lose 3 decibels. Yeah. And that's, that's what you're going good. for. Yeah, exactly. That's not too bad. 3 dB is half power. So that's pretty good. Makes it ideal for space and for broadcast applications, which is yeah. why uh, circular polarizers the way they go. Yes. Uh, the dB scale, it's logarithmic, right? Correct. So when you when you say you're going down from 20 to 3, that's a lot more significant than just the integer values would imply. Exactly. It's, it's huge. Yeah. 20 dB is massive, a massive, massive amount of loss. Some of the highest gain Yagis um, that you'll get, you know, are only going to give you 15, 16 dB a gain. So losing 20 dB is just horribly bad, which is why people that are serious in, in radio, um, in amateur radio, what they'll do is they'll have a horizontal and vertically polarized um, antenna such that they can switch polarizations to get the maximum amount of power because you don't know which one it's going to be. And there's some antennas, some amateur radios will even have... Uh, you know, uh, have circularly polarized antennas. And this is why you see antenna arrays. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's just one reason. There's Antenna arrays is a yeah, whole other thing. But, yeah, it, that's absolutely true. So, all right. Um, I don't want to go too much more into that, but uh, just a little heads up. When we measure gain from an antenna, what we're doing is we're measuring... Um, uh, we're measuring the maximum amount of gain when you plot it on the H and the E plane. And uh, that's the maximum amount of power as measured at a distance from a center point. Center point is usually the feed point or in the case of an isotropic radio, which doesn't exist. It's that point source. So a lot of antennas are measured against the isotropic radiator, which kind of sucks because that's a BS measurement. So if I have an antenna and I say, yeah, it's got 2.14 dB again over isotropic, you're like, yeah, great. That's a dipole. Yeah. Okay, good. I mean, what does that actually mean? It doesn't mean anything. So when people, you quote an antenna, you say, I'm buying this antenna, it's great, it's got 10 dB of gain. Oh, really? 10 dB I or 10 dB D? Because it makes a big difference. Well, it makes a 2.14 dB difference. So, you know, so, you know, you'll often find that these, you know, the sales pitches are almost always in DBI because it sounds better, you know? Whereas okay. the reality is that, you know, if you put a dipole up and you put up this, this competing Yagi, let's say, you know, that you're only going to see an improvement of, of 8 dB of gain. Because you know that you're going to get two dB for free because it's a dipole compared to isotropic, so just something to keep in mind if you're buying an antenna. Got it. Anyway, all right, talked about that. Ground independence. I'm not going to talk about standing wave ratio. I've talked about Yagi's. Okay, so Yagi. What is a Yagi? Okay, so Miss uh, Mr. Yagi, Mr. Yuda. So technically, the full name is because it was a collaborative effort. Was uh, is the Yagi Yuda? But um, Mr. Yuda, unfortunately. His name got dropped off for whatever reason. People just call it Yagi. Anyway, Yagis are essentially the highest gain 
linear antenna that you can get without building like a parabolic dish. And the way they work is you'll have a, a feed element, uh, sometimes called a driven element or a driver, mm-hmm. and that will be your dipole. And that'll resonate at whatever frequency you want to get the maximum amount of gain at. Then you'll have one element behind it, which is slightly longer, and that's called the reflector. Some Yagis will have two reflectors, but it's one of those laws of diminishing returns. They found that by adding more reflectors behind that, you didn't get an appreciable improvement in your um, in your front-to-back ratio. So anyway, then in front of that, you're, the driven element, you'll have a bunch of director elements. And the directors are slightly smaller than your uh, driver element. The spacing is, of course, critical. So there's a bunch of formulas to figure that out. Uh, what the spacing is between the elements. And of course, once you get past about 10 director elements, you know it gets to the point of diminishing returns where you can keep adding more. It just confuses the radiation pattern. You get reducing gain. Like every director you add, the first You're introducing three, noise. Yeah, exactly. You're distorting the pattern so much that you're not getting appreciable improvements in gain. So all this radio energy is being bent forwards and reflected from the back. So the ratio of power from what comes off the back lobe versus the front lobe is called the front-to-back ratio. There's all, other, all sorts of other measures like side rejection um, and all sorts of other things. The whole point is that you're trying to maximize the amount of forward gain that you get out of the antenna by bending the electromagnetic waves forward. It's a very cool idea. It works very well. But you'll see Yagis all over the place. They're very, very common. So whenever you see, whenever you see an antenna that looks like a... Uh, well, essentially, a, I don't know. What does it look like? Hmm. It's hard to describe. I'm trying to think of an analogy of what these things actually look like. You've got a long boom, which is you know usually made out of steel. You can have Yagi's with conductive and non-conductive booms. It's a different set of equations for each. But anyway, and then you'll have a bunch of, of, of much smaller um, conductive uh, bits of metal. And uh, they'll be spaced out across it. And that's it, really. It's hard to describe what it looks like. I guess it looks a little bit like a, a hairbrush that's got spikes on either side. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Cool. Old school TV antennas. Yeah, exactly. And so if you look at any old TV antenna, you will see a Yagi. Aerial in the UK. (laughs) Aerial. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. TV aerials. Um, However, there's a big caveat on that. Uh, Yeah, the Yagis, no, they're not. And um, I I think I might just quickly uh, break to talk about our first sponsor before we go into what on earth I mean by that. And our first sponsor is uh, lynda.com. Now, lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to learn. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business software, web development, graphic design, audio, and lots and lots more. Way too many to list here. Now, they have an enormous library of titles to choose from, with new courses added every day to make sure their library is both relevant and up-to-date. They work directly with experts from many different industries and software development companies to provide timely training, often the exact same day the newest release becomes available. So you know that you've got the latest information the moment that you are most likely to need it. Now, these are nothing at all like the homemade tutorial videos you might find on YouTube that might tell you a little snippet, unindexed, buried somewhere, God knows where, somewhere deep inside at 22 minutes and 10 seconds in, and you don't know that until you've listened to the whole thing. But you really want to know that one little snippet. How do you find it? Well, lynda.com make high quality, easy to follow, and well-indexed, importantly, well-indexed video tutorials with transcripts broken down into easily searchable sections. Now, this bite-sized piece approach 
makes it very, very easy to stop and pick up where you left off whenever you need to. So you can learn at your own pace, in your own way, and in your own time. Now, whether you're a complete beginner with no knowledge at all about a subject, or you've been you know, moderate to advanced user looking to brush up on the latest version of the software that's just been released, well, lynda.com has courses that span the entire range of those experience levels. So you can learn on the go as well, since lynda.com has iPhone, iPad, and Android apps. And they also support playlists and provide certificates as evidence when you complete courses. Now, if you're on LinkedIn, you can even publish them directly to your profile. Yes, I have a LinkedIn profile. Now, a little known fact about me, many, many years ago, when I left Windows behind, and I say left Windows behind, but you know, and switched to a Mac, I got stuck into a lynda.com course called Tiger the Basics. And then I followed it up you know, the next year with uh, Leopard New Features and Essential Training. Now, that was about seven years ago. So these lynda.com, they're not a new thing. They've been around for a long time and with very good reason. They helped me out a lot back then. And now today, I've just started learning Logic Pro X, which is the new software I'll be editing this podcast with as of this episode. Now, the essential training for Logic is seven hours and 20 minutes of video with full transcript. It's broken down into sections that I need so I can pick and choose the bits that matter the most to podcasting. Now, I might skip the section about MIDI, but bouncing down your mix, I think I'll cover that in depth because, you know, that's mm-hmm. probably going to matter specifically to what I want to do. But that's just the beginning. There's so much good stuff in there to list. And it's, that's just one piece of software. There's thousands more. Now, what's it worth? For, for one low monthly price of $25, you get completely unlimited access to over 100,000 video tutorials in the lynda.com library. That's huge. However, premium members with an annual plan can download courses to their iPhones, iPads, or Android devices and watch them on, offline on the go. Now, premium plan members can also download the project files and practice along with the instructor. Now, maybe you're getting into pages, numbers, and keynote. Now, they sync up nicely between the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. But, yeah, you're just probably just scratching the surface of what's possible. Well, lynda.com has training in all of those apps on their latest versions. Now, alternatively, if you're into Office 365, hands up, I am. I actually use both. Same deal for Word, Excel, PowerPoint. It's all there, and there's lots more. Now, I've been talking with lynda.com for a while now, and... I've enjoyed their content on and off for years, and I'm really happy to be able to provide pragmatic listeners with a special offer to access all their courses for free for seven days. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to try lynda.com free for seven days. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash pragmatic. Thank you to lynda.com for sponsoring Pragmatic. Okay, so I said TV antennas, they're Yagi's, but they weren't. What I mean is mm-hmm. that the problem with a Yagi is that they're very fixed frequency. So once you vary too much from the center frequency, they tend to lose a lot of gain. And that's obviously okay. not what you want. TV is spread over a massive area. You know, it's down, starts at hundreds of megahertz, 100 megahertz, goes up very close to the, to the gigahertz range. It's a huge band, huge range of wavelengths. I mean, you're literally starting down like 50 centimeters. And you're ending up around about the, um, oh God, here I am doing math in my head on the top of my head. Let's just say it's a huge, huge variation. You cannot design a Yagi that has a useful gain over such a wide frequency range. In 1957, a couple of bright people crunched some really mind-bending mathematics and came up with the idea of a, of a log periodic. 
And I absolutely love log periodics because I looked at the math and it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, as mathematics goes, you know, if you're into that sort of thing, I guess. But look, I'm just saying, really cool. So a guy called um, R.H. Duhamel, I do not know the first name, sorry, and D.E. Isbell. I came up with the idea of a log periodic array such that it will give you wide band, wide bandwidth, but high directionality. Mm-hmm. So, and what how you can tell log periodics, if you've got to look closely, is that what they do is they'll start off with, a, it looks like a reflector element, and then they taper off very quickly down to a director element, but they taper off kind of like a triangle. I mean, it's not exactly a triangle, obviously, it's logarithmic, but, you know, it looks a bit like that. Whereas with a Yagi, you'll have a wider rear element, a slightly narrower driven element, then all your directors will be pretty much the same size. Whereas a log periodic, it's it's more of a progression down to a finer point at the front. If you look really closely, you'll see on a, on a, on a log periodic that it's not like a Yagi whereby the all of the elements are actually a physic, physically continuous. So what you'll get is along the boom is you'll have on a log periodic is you'll have one half of the element on the lower side uh, and mm-hmm. the upper side will be essentially um, isolated from each other. So they're not electrically connected. And then along the course of the boom, you'll see a zigzag pattern whereby each half of the preceding element is fed across to the other side of the boom of the element in front in a zigzag pattern to the front, loop at the front, zigzag to the back, and then you feed at the back. Or you can feed front end or back fed, doesn't matter. The point is, um, there's that, it's the um, alternating cross feed. And what that does is it creates a, as the resonant frequency changes, what it does is it increases the relative impedance of the section of the antenna towards the front or the back based on the frequency so that the active driven point changes in distance along the boom of the antenna based on frequency. It is so cool, it's not funny. Well, I'll, yeah, I would, I don't know, sorry. I like this stuff. Anyway, so <laughs> what, what you'll often find is that the log periodic itself needs a bit of help on the extremes. So what do they do? A TV antenna you will often find has an extra feature. It's not just a log periodic. It's got a few Yagi features as well. So they'll have a log periodic in the center of the antenna and they'll have a larger reflector element at the back, which is a Yagi feature, and they'll have a few smaller, much smaller director elements at the front. So that's referred to as a log Yagi because, well, it's a log periodic and it's a Yagi Yuta. Therefore, it's a log Yagi. And that's what almost all television antennas are, the higher gain ones. So they cover a wide frequency range, plus they've got a mixture of the best of both. They're a hybrid antenna. Some of them have even got what they call a corner reflector. And corner reflectors are these, these little sort of fan things that, that, that go up either side of the, uh, the log periodic element. And they're designed to drag in more antenna. More antenna. <laughs> drag in more antenna. No, drag in more radio energy from above and below. Anyway, all right. That's enough of the coolness. So I'm just, uh, I talk quickly about um, parabolic dishes, uh, parabolas, of course, you know, radio energy or light, whatever it might be. They'll hit the parabola. They'll reflect into a common focus, focal point. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things that people 
often forget about is that um, you know there's multiple ways that you can actually mount these things. You can have axial front feed, or you can have offset, off-axis offset feeds. Um, there's uh, another method which is uh, a Cassegrain, and it's uh, sort of like a there's a reflector, and you've actually you go you hit the parabola, you come back out, you hit another reflector, and then you go back to a file, another secondary focal point. Um, Anyway, it's sort of hard to explain. Uh, and then there's the uh, a Gregorian one, which uh, the idea is that you, you use a convex or you use a concave secondary reflector, and that will then refocus the, the energy back to a surface point on the actual dish that you have the feed. But irrespective of how it's done, parabolic dishes are brilliant at higher frequencies. At lower frequencies, they suck because they're huge. Got it. Okay. I, I swear we're getting close to talking about amateur radio anytime. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so atmospheric propagation, absolutely have to talk about this in order for a lot of the stuff in amateur radio to make any sense. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the cool stuff to make sense. I say cool stuff because I find it cool. Yeah, whatever. Maybe other people don't, but I do. Okay, so the idea is that there's a few layers in the Earth's atmosphere. There's the troposphere, and above that, you start going into the ionospheric layers. The ionosphere essentially are layers of the Earth's atmosphere that are, consist of charged particles. And as the sun hits them, they charge the particles and they then act like a mirror for electromagnetic waves between a certain frequency range. And the layers of the ionosphere uh, are lettered. So you've got D layer, E, F1, F2 are the most common ones in uh, radio propagation or what they call, sorry, ionospheric propagation. So the D layer is 70 kilometers up, F layer is 120, F, sorry, E layer is 120, F1 is 200, and the F2 layer is 300 to 400 kilometers. That's quite way out. And the point is that as the sun goes up, it charges all the way down to the bottom. As the sun goes down, the charge begins to dissipate, and that exposes the outer layers. Now, why that matters is the angle that the radio waves hit it. So the ones that are close to the ground, therefore, you'll end up with uh, much less propagation as a result because the mirror is closer to the ground but as that mirror mm-hmm. goes out after the sun goes down you'll start to get ionospheric propagation from much further away which is why on, on on radio signals they'll broadcast out from one point like am radio and during the day you'll only hear your local stations but at night time you'll hear stations from much much further away and that's because the sun goes down the lower ionospheric layers discharge and you start to get a reflection from further away but anyway cool yeah, it is kind of cool. Uh, I always wondered why that was. <laughs> yeah, all about the ionosphere, which is kind of cool. And that means, of course, that you can uh, intentionally uh, skip signals, and that's why some people refer to it as skip. You can skip signals between the Earth and the ionosphere all around the world. And unfortunately, a lot of it has to do with sunspots. Everyone, a lot of people see sunspots as a bad thing, but if you're on a radio, sunspots are like your friend. Because if you get sunspots then what will happen is that those, that those big waves of radiation will charge up the ionosphere and that'll create patterns in the atmosphere that give you a propagation path between certain locations. Bouncing it off the Earth is the, is the easier part, especially if you live near the coastline, because when you're near the coastline, well, the ocean is a very good conductor. So if you bounce it from your sea, if your mm-hmm. antenna bounces off the ionosphere and then comes back down again on an ocean, it's very likely to skip back up again and, and basically bounce around the world. So in order to take advantage of that sort of skip, you really need a you know, directional antenna. And you know, Yagi's are by far the most common. And 
Uh, at one point, I was running a, a six-element Starduster, which is a 27 megahertz uh, CB radio antenna, and I was running on on uh, uh, single sideband modulation. Uh, well, technically, the lower sideband, anyway. I'm not going to go on the modulation methods. That's a whole other podcast. But anyway, and uh, I, my, my crowning achievements were two things. One was I reached uh, Oregon, and, um, of course, this is before the internet, uh, anyway, and so I was talking to, um, some people in Oregon. I would regularly talk to Hawaii and, uh, after a while, there was one time I had a particularly lucky bit of skip where I heard my own echo. In other words, uh, my signal traveled the entire way around the world. And once you take your finger wow. off the key, you hear your own echo, which is so cool. <laughs> That would be cool. It was very cool. Um, because, of course, the time delay it takes for a, um, even the speed of light to travel around the world. Anyone that's talked on a long-distance phone between continents will know this. Um, you know, and Skype, of course, suffers from it as well. Anyway. So, yeah. Cool stuff. Um, and, of course, all done with no wires. See? Look, Ma. No wires. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to talk about frontal zones, um, modulation methods. I'm going to, not going to talk about that. Um, I'm not going to talk about Shannon's theorem. Okay, so a few little things, things like repeaters. Now, people, you may have heard of repeaters. The idea is that if I'm on a higher frequency and I want to talk to someone and there's a mountain or some physical barrier between the two of us, how do I talk to them? If I can't talk directly because I'm on a higher frequency, I can't, the signal won't bend. It's not going to punch through the hill. You're just going to be in a black zone. So I can't talk to you because you're you know, on, on the other side of the hill. Uh-huh. And no, there's no internet and there's no mobile phones. All right? I'm, obviously, this is radio. I'm not talking, I'm not talking about that. So, <clears throat> so what do you do? You put a repeater on the top. Put of the a hill. repeater on the top of that hill. Yes, you do. And then I can see the repeater and you can see the repeater. And I talk to the repeater and it repeats what I say. Real simple. In order to do that, of course, you can't do that. There's two kinds of repeaters, simplex and duplex. A simplex repeater is kind of like a store and forward. So, uh, and simplex voice repeaters are virtually unheard of. It's pretty much a digital thing. Uh, there, there, there have been uh, simplex voice repeaters. The idea is that I'll talk to on one specific frequency. Let's say it's, you know, 438.125 megahertz. And just to pick a number, whatever. So I'm, I talk, 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 and it'll store up to 20 seconds or 30 seconds, and then I, I release, I, I, I unkey or release the key on the radio, release the button, push the talk button, and then it'll relay that signal and repeat it on the same frequency for everyone else to hear. But that's very problematic in all sorts of ways. So it was... Well, it inter- definitely introduces a nice little lag into your conversation. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, in some cases... It's a requirement where you've got very limited frequencies. But honestly, mm-hmm. it's more of a digital thing. The idea is packet-based packet, packet packet data is ideally suited for simplex transmission. And when you think about it, um, you know, there's a lot of buses out there that, that do this, that do, do packet-based simplex transmissions. But if you want speed... Mm-hmm. And you want usability, you go duplex. In other words, you have an uplink and a downlink. So on one frequency, which is separated by a certain amount of space from the other frequency, so they don't interfere with each other. So you transmit on one and you receive on the other. So the idea is that um, I'll go on an uplink channel to the repeater 
and then it'll live rebroadcast that on a different frequency so that everyone else can listen. And they'll refer to that sometimes as split operation. So the idea is that your repeater is there to help you. But there's one problem, of course, with repeaters, and that is that you get one repeater, and all it takes is the person with the loudest signal to overrun the repeater and take over. So they can say, oh, I'm going to be a jerk, and they'll just key up and play music or just be a jerk. And, yeah, this is the problem with CB radio, right? Is that there are a lot of jerks on CB radio, turns out. This is the thing is, is this is I've probably prepared the least for this episode because I can talk about this stuff off the top of my head for hours and I probably would <laughs> if given the opportunity. So I have to rein myself in here. So one of the really cool things about um, about learning about this stuff when I was younger is I was, I, I've taken a lot of this into my professional career. So uh, repeaters and so on used in telemetry, simplex, duplex, data, all that stuff over radio. It's, it, I've actually done that in, as part of my professional job, but I learned about it first when I was a, uh, when, when I was an amateur radio operator. So for me, it's sort of a, you know, it's been one of those really great uh, dovetails uh, between my personal and my professional careers, personal career. God. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So amateur radio. Now, it sort of started out in the late 19th century, but really took off in the early 20th. And it was a result of Marconi's work. And ham radio actually was meant as an insult. Uh, <laughs> it was meant to mock radio operators that were, didn't do it professionally. Because, of course, you had professional radio operators and they operated the telegraphs for communication. You know, ship to shore. Yeah. You know, and te- telegraph operators even then were, for, were, were referred under the same kind of terminology. You know, so uh, something being ham-fisted. Or a ham actor. That's that's what I thought. Yeah, exactly. So ham radio is kind of like, yeah, you're a radio operator. Yeah, but you suck. <laughs> and it's like, well, gee, that's lovely, isn't it? Oh, good God. Anyway, it, not very nice. So I prefer, and, and frankly, outside of the United States, everyone else calls it amateur radio. They don't call it ham radio anywhere else other than the States. And um, when I was over there, I was constantly correcting myself. Oh, yeah, um, I'm an amateur radio operator. And they'd look funny. I'm like, oh. Ham radio. Yeah, okay, now I know what you're talking about. All right, great. Even though it was insulting. Yeah, and I've known that for a long time, and I don't know why people in North America persist in calling it ham radio because, frankly, you know, these days it's the other way around. There are practically no professional radio operators left, you know, and now all you've got left in terms of radio are the amateur radio operators. Anyway. Yeah, well, I think that over here, the... The, the time distance from when the, the terminology first came to be ham radio. I don't think anybody even here associates it with ham fisted or, or an insult anymore. I think they just call it ham radio. Oh, oh sure. Absolutely. I mean, this is the problem with, with expressions is that they start out with a, a basis and a foundation. And then as time goes on, it becomes a colloquialism. And then the, the entomology of the expression yeah. is lost. So, you know, I don't think anyone says it as an insult. No, I mean, it's like, oh, you're a ham radio operator. No, they don't, they don't say it like that anymore. <laughs> uh, they, they say it in terms of that is what it is. So you're right, I agree. And, and, and that's true. But the problem is knowing the etymology of it, I kind of I flinch every time I hear it. So anyway. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So anyway, all right, fine, fine, fine. So us hammies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. We need to stick together. So there's a bunch of 
organizations out there that you may or may not have heard of. The most common one in North America is the ARRL, which is the American Radio Relay League, which is a you know a bit of a weird name, but hey, it came from a different era. So the ARRL. Uh, in Australia, we have the Wireless Institute of Australia, or the WIA. And every different country, or a lot of different countries, have their own institution or league. Every time I hear the word league, I keep thinking League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I thought was a really cool movie. Even though it was completely ridiculous, it was still cool. And I remember they had this one scene, they had to, they had to reshoot and it cost them millions and millions of dollars because they screwed it up or something. Anyway, whatever. This is not defocused. Anyhow, so uh, all of the different frequencies um, that amateur radio operators are allowed to use are set by the International Telecommunications Union, or ITU for short. But the representation of amateur radio operators as a collective whole, kind of like the union, if you will, is by the WIA and the ARRL. And they'll petition and say, oh, no, we need access to these frequencies because, of course, spectrum is money, you know? And ever since the explosion of mobile devices, you know, FM radio, television, all that, you know, whatever, you know. But mobile phones, oh, my God, there is so much pressure. And, of course, now with Wi-Fi as well and, and Bluetooth and all these different snippets of the radio spectrum, you know, the pressure has never been greater to rip the frequencies mm-hmm. away from amateur radio operators. And to be honest, it's happening, and it will continue to happen more. And why is simply because the number of people that are actually practicing amateur radio operators is, is, is collapsing as a hobby. It's, it's yeah. disappearing. In 2004 there was an estimated 4 million operators, amateur radio operators are active around the world. In 2011, that estimate was down to half, so down to 2 million in 2011. So in less than a decade, it's half what it was. Now, I would expect that to be less than a million before that much longer. Yeah, And then it's going to be measured in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And the reason I put down to this is simply the fact of it's gone from being anyone can talk without wires if they're a radio operator. They could talk overseas. They could do all that stuff. Well, guess what? Two things happened. One, the internet happened. And then two, Uh mobile phones became ubiquitous. Yep. Why on earth would I sit exams? Why on earth would I pay $1,000 for a radio, build an antenna, which looks, well, debatably horrible or beautiful, depending upon your point of view? If you're me, it's beautiful, but whatever. My wife, on the other hand, anyway. Why on earth would you go to all that trouble just to talk to your mate down the street or across the other side of town or maybe on propagation on the other side of the world when you can just pick up a phone and dial a number or get on Skype or or whatever? Why not? Why why would you go down? why Why all the trouble? Why? You know? So amateur radio operators... They can say, hey, look, man, no wires. Like I said before, <clears throat> ain't it cool? Well, yeah, it's cool, but guess what? You know, it's also expensive. It's got a high bar to get, a high barrier of entry, and, and the joy of entry is no longer all that interesting. I could get on, you know, chat roulette. Yep. Anybody can download Skype. Yeah. I mean, I could call up people randomly, but I mean, you can get on chat roulette. You can get on IRC. You can talk to whoever the heck you want, whenever the heck you want on the internet. What's the attraction? Of, of amateur radio anymore, you know? I mean, if, if you're really into it, then that's great. But, you know, honestly, these two things, I think, have killed it. Or if they haven't killed it yet, I'm speaking like it's dead already. It's not, but it's dying. 
and its death is inevitable. I mean, there'll always be enthusiasts. Don't get me wrong. There will always be enthusiasts. Yeah. But now that I've gone and, you know, prognosticated the, uh, the end of radio, of amateur radio, let's talk a bit more about it. Okay. You know what a call sign is? Mm-hmm. Okay, so in amateur radio, it's absolutely critical that you have a call sign to identify who you are. And why is because it's licensed. So any old Joe, Bob and Fred can't jump on and just start talking on amateur radio. You can on CB radio, but on amateur radio. You need to have a, you need to be licensed and they need to be able to, and you've got to pay fees, at least in our country anyway. I'm pretty sure you still do in America. So yeah. I'll pay, you know, like for five years and that would give me a call sign of my choosing provided it was available. Now I let my call sign lapse. <coughs> I still call myself an amateur radio operator and I am qualified to be. And if I walked into the, um, into, into the ACMA tomorrow, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, I could register myself as an amateur radio operator with my, my certificates and I could uh, pay the license fee and I could get a, um, a call sign tomorrow if I wanted. And I think my old... So it's, it's hmm. like a, a Twitter handle that you register like a domain name. Perfect analogy. Exactly. Okay. Well, once someone else has got it, you're out of luck. So anyway... Gotcha. Um, so that's all lapsed. It's all gone. Uh, although technically I'm still an amateur radio operator. I'm not an active amateur radio operator. I've sold all my radio gear. Basically, I just... I chose. I'm, I'm podcasting. I'm doing a website. I'm not keying up a radio. Anyway, so call signs are typically uh, uh, by country. So the first two or three digits are country, uh, alphanumeric, I should say. So, for example, Australia is VK. And uh, in uh, North America, it's uh, VE, and NN. Um, there's a few others because North America's got one or two more, you know, <laughs> amateur radio present in Australia. So they, they, you couldn't just get away with, uh, with uh, two letters. So... Uh, what I what I do in Australia is they split the states and they give them a number. So Queensland is four. So I'm a VK four. And okay. then the last two or three, one, two, or sorry, one, two or three digits are then basically all of the different possibilities from there. So that's call signs. And you're supposed to announce your call sign periodically when you're on the radio. So you might key up and say, hey, this is, uh, you know, VK four JSB and um, transmitting. How you doing? And then every 10 minutes, you say, um, you've got to repeat your call sign. You say, yeah, this is VK4JSB. Getting back to you. It irritates me when people say it continuously every single time, you know? And when you're in a conversation, yeah. you know, if you want to really be strict about it, I guess you can. But, geez, it gets irritating, especially if every back and forth you've got is like 10 seconds long. So, uh, you, you'll hear this sort of thing sometimes on radio. It's like, VK4JSB, this is VK4JSY. How you doing? Yeah, VK4JSY is VK4JSB. I'm doing good. How are you doing? Back to you, VK4JSB, VK4JSY. Oh, my God. That would get tiring. It's like 80% of what you just bloody said are your <laughs> call signs. I get it. I know who you are. Oh, God, crikey, whatever. Anyway, never mind that. So let's move on. Bands modes, power restrictions. So amateur radio have got a whole bunch, like I said, of frequencies and power, power levels that have been permitted by the ITU, been fought for for years, and... They'll often refer to them by their bands, by their wavelength. So, for example, uh, they'll say the 80 meter band, and that's the wavelength. And you know, the 80 meter band is around about three and a half uh, megahertz. 
And then you've got 40 meters, which is about 7 megahertz, and then the 20 meter band, which is 14 megahertz, and so on. And the reason we refer to it in terms of the wavelengths is simply because uh, that's directly related to the size of the antennas. So, well, at least that's my theory. Maybe there's another reason as to why, but I always figured that that was why. Anyway, all right. So um, I used to like working, my favorite band, I reckon the best band in the world is uh, 20 meter band because you're just above most of your atmospherics, but you've got really great propagation. So from an ionospheric point of view, it bends nicely. Uh, you're only allowed to transmit certain amounts of power that varies from country to country. So in Australia, we might have a hundred uh, watt output limit, but in America, you can have one kilowatt. It's like, oh, wow. So there you go. That's lots of juice. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, 100 watts here. So on, on most frequencies. So you've got, you're restricted how much power that you can ha have at the back of your radio. Of course, if you put that into, a, into an antenna and that antenna amplifies that and you get 20 dB of gain, well, more realistically, let's say 10 dB of gain, you know, then obviously you're going to have much more peak power. Uh, and that's fine. And, but certain regulations on certain frequencies stipulate that it's the actual delivered power at the uh, maximum gain of the antenna. So that's that kind of blows that idea out of the water. But you know, most of the time it's not measured. When it comes to professional like telemetry systems, they take that very seriously. So you can't get away with tricks like that. Like if you've got a one watt radio and you want to go 27 kilometers, you want to put in a really high gain antenna. Well, guess what? You can't because the regulations state it can't be more than this number of dB. So you've got to be careful. But anyway, never mind that. All right. Have, so it's not a free-for-all. It's not a free-for-all. It can't be because of interference, right? Because if you have yeah. too much power, you're going to start bleeding over into other frequencies. Other, other people's antennas, uh, receivers are going to be overwhelmed by the power that you're transmitting at certain frequencies. So there's all sorts of other different filters like you know notch filters, bandpass filters, all this sort of stuff that goes into uh, radio systems in order to prevent cross-interference. All righty. So before we go any further, we're going to start talking about Q codes next. Is I'd like to talk about our second sponsor for this episode, and that's Audible. So Audible is a leading provider of premium spoken audio information and entertainment that allows listeners to choose from the audio versions of their favorite books. Now, why would you want to do this? Well, many of our day-to-day -day activities, you need your eyes on the job. So when there's a book you really want to read, but you say, oh, you're too busy. Well, if you're too busy with other things, you just can't find the time. But, but that's when audiobooks can come in and help because it's much easier to multitask when you're listening to music, a podcast, or an audiobook. Whether you're driving, doing housework, or yard work, with Audible, you can still, quote-unquote, read your favorite book and not miss out. It's really cool. So you can buy books either individually or you can sign up for the Audible Listener Program and it gives you book credits each month for a low monthly fee. You can download your audiobook to your PC, your Mac, your Windows phone, Android, iOS device, and listen to it wherever you might be. Now, as for me, I'm a huge Douglas Adams fan, and I make no secret of that. Um, I had to have a look when I, when I you know, first looked at Audible, see what they had in the way of his books as, uh, as audio books. Well, there's about 20 of them in Audible's library, and they include all the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, my favorite two Dirk Gently books, as well as two of the Doctor Who episodes he was involved with, including the Unfinished Shader episode. That was the basis of the first Dirk Gently book, for those that, that know Douglas Adams and so on. Um, the best part, though, is that some of the books are read by Douglas Adams himself. Now, I've been listening to Dirk Gently's Solicity Detective Agency. I've listened to it twice through now. It's fantastic. But you know, if you're not into listening to the original author read their own books, sometimes a book can be better with a, with a great narrator. Now, there's plenty of yeah. other options, you know, like Harry Enfield, and he reads Long Dark Tea Time of the Salt as well. And you know, for those who don't remember him, he was from... 
He was Dermot and Men Behaving Badly. Maybe people don't remember that, but I do. Anyway, so Audible has books in business, classics, um, erotica and sexuality, mm. fiction, history, romance, mysteries, thrillers, sci-fi and fantasy, self-development, kids, young adult, and lots, lots more. With over 150,000 titles and pretty much every genre you can imagine, you're going to find what you're looking for. So right now, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic. Please make sure you use that specific URL, audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic to get your free audiobook. And I'd personally like to thank Audible for sponsoring Pragmatic. Q codes. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? I do not. Okay. Now, if I were to say 10 codes, would you know what I'm talking about? I do not. Okay. Now, if I say this, 10-4, Roger Duck, good buddy. Yes. Now you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. 10-4, Roger Duck, over and under. Okay. Uh-huh. So, in America, the 10 codes were used by the police department. <clears throat> And they actually came after the Q codes. And the Q codes were actually developed by the British government in the late 1910s. And they're basically a way of abbreviating questions and answers uh, in phonetics, essentially. So a uh, phonetic alphabet, of course, being um, uh, Alpha, Bravo, you know, Foxtrot, Golf, Hotel, India. You know, you, you use a word that's distinctive to represent the letter. Got it. Right. So, the Q codes all start with, oddly, the letter Q. So, you've got the most four... I'm just going to list the four most common ones. QSY, which is... can be These can be asked as a question, or they can be an answer, or they become used as nouns in a conversation, which is a bit freaky, but there you go. So, QSY is, you know, do you want to change to a different frequency? Okay. Or, I have changed to a different frequency, or I'm going to change to a different frequency, or we should change to a different frequency. So, yeah, it could be used in all of those contexts. So, you would say, uh, yeah, let's QSY, you know, 14150. And that'll be, I'm going to change frequency, now I'm going to move to this frequency. You know, or in the CB sense, or the, you know, the UHF uh, sense, uh, you might say, um, you know, QSY channel 38, whatever. Okay, QRM, uh, radio interference. QRP is low power. QSL is uh, acknowledge receipt. So those are the four most common ones that I've come across. Okay. So, what are some of the different aspects of amateur radio? And I've talked a bit about propagation, but there's actually a lot more to it. And lots of little facets, and I want to just quickly cover the big ones, mainly the ones that I was involved with. The first one I want to start with is ARDF. Now, I say ARDF, Amateur Radio Direction Finding, and most people are going to say, what the hell are you talking about? But then I say fox hunting, and then most people know what I mean. Do you know what I mean when I say fox hunting? I do not. Well, that's okay. Um... It's not like actually getting a gun and shooting a fox, which is, you know... I assumed it was not. No, you, you assumed correctly. Yeah, no, it's not. No, obviously it's not that. So no foxes were, uh, no foxes were harmed in the making of this episode. Um, <clears throat> so someone builds a very low-powered transmitter, puts a battery in it, and hides it somewhere. In the bush, usually. And then what you do Got it. is you all start from a, a common starting point, stopwatch. And it's now your job to find the fox. First one to find the fox wins. They call this thing the fox. Okay. Fox hunting. 
So to do this, what they'll do is uh, what you have with you is um, you have to understand uh, the basics of triangulation and you need a highly directional antenna and you also need a power attenuator. So the idea is that you'll have a radio that listens on the frequency that the fox is transmitting on. Usually the fox will transmit just a series of Morse code, you know, da 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 whatever. And it'll be on a continuous repeat on that frequency. You'll listen for that. And you'll have a handheld antenna and you sort of sweep it around to find the highest frequent, highest, uh, most directional, uh, the, the most best direction for the signal. And then you've got to run across to another area to take another reading and to try and triangulate where exactly it's coming from and its distance. And then as you're getting closer, uh, essentially uh, you have to increase the amount of attenuation, otherwise it'll overload your receiver. So those components go together, you know, compasses, maps, and whatever. This is all before GPS, so to help you locate the fox. And there's competitions, you know, worldwide about with uh, with ARDF. It's still a big thing. So I uh, I went on a fox hunt in uh, Clareview. I uh, was very lucky that uh, one of the guys was was big into it and competed internationally. I never did, um, but there's a amateur radio weekend in North America. They'd call it a ham fest. And uh, anyway, so we, we, we just called it the Clareview Weekend. We had uh, two. Where I grew up in Rockhampton, there was one at Clareview, which is uh, most of the way to Mackay, uh, north of Rockhampton. There's another one out west at oh, Fairburn Dam. And these come up once a year. And there's just little mini ham fests where amateur radio operators will, operators will sort of get together and you know do amateur radio-y things. Um, you know, compare gear, buy and sell stuff. It's, a bit of fun, actually. The auction's the best part. But anyway. So I did a fox hunt. Some guy was very nice enough to lend me his gear. So I had a couple of rounds and uh, of fox hunting, and I participated in a round and successfully sprained my ankle. Because uh, trying to run through bushland chasing a fox is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's more hazardous than you might think. Yeah. Because you're like, I've got to get to the fox. Oh, damn it. Oh, oh, crap. I just tripped over again. And of course, when you trip over, you don't want to break this $100 antenna, right? So no. you're going to take the beating, not the antenna. <laughs> and you fall over and you get stabbed by the antenna and you're like, oh, my God. So, yeah, yeah, it's. I'm picturing a bunch of nerdy guys that don't normally see much outdoor time <laughs> all strapped down with expensive gear all over their person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that pretty well sums it up. Holding this ungangly antenna in front of them with a funny pistol grip on it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it is bizarre. But anyway, it's also kind of cool. Anyway, all right. Well, I say it's cool. <clears throat> anyway, therefore, it's cool. Possibly not. All right, so moving on. We'll talk about propagation. So there are these things called uh, DX competitions. Uh, DX being short for, um, per, well, distance transmission. Or what's just referred to as DX. Okay. So when you're chasing skip, you're chasing prop- isospheric propagation, you're chasing DX. That's the one of the, one of the lingo's slangs that they'll use. Anyway, so they'll have uh, DX competitions where you essentially... There's a timer. It'll start at, say, 12 midnight on one date, finish, I don't know, 8 a.m. the next day or, you know, whatever. 24-hour, 48-hours contest. And you have to contact as many other uh-huh. people doing the contest at that time. And there'll be a minimum distance. So you can't contact a local and call that a contact. 
they have to be greater than a few hundred miles away, otherwise they don't count. In other words, it has to be actual propagation. You can't just have a competition and talk to locals. I'm sure those competitions existed, but you know that would not be a DX competition, would it? Uh, anyway, so uh, I participated in one of those. Um, I th- it was the uh, the Jack Fast contest, and um, yeah, I, I made 102 contacts, and I came 78th in Australia. So yeah, pretty piss poor showing, really. But never mind that. That's okay. It's the only one I ever went in, and uh, I only made two contacts on Morse. Uh, the rest of them, and, and I made another two because you get bonus points for Morse, and um, if you uh, do on Lyle Fridge as well. So I made a couple of contacts on 160 meter band as well, uh, which is also hard because you need an enormous antenna, and it's also difficult because you can only do it at night time. Anyway, uh, right, moving on. So uh, that's DX competitions. What's what's uh, also an adjunct to that is the DXCC, and that's re- sometimes referred to as the Century Club. Uh, or the Worked 100 Countries Award. And the idea behind that is that over a period of time, if you have confirmed contacts with other people in 100 different countries around the world, then you are eligible for the DXCC, which is something that not too many people have. And frankly, you know, maybe it's not a big thing anymore, but so I can get on the phone and dial 100 countries in a hell of a lot less time than it would take me to do Uh that. But a friend of mine around the corner from me, literally around the corner from me, um, had the DXCC um, certificate. So he was, he, he'd done really, really well. Um, uh, Clive, a friend of mine. And anyway, um, great bloke too, by the way. Helped me out a lot early days. Uh, actually was one of the, was the, um, the local WIA representative who, uh, uh, who witnessed slash administered my, uh, my entry exams. So um, he was a very, very, very cool guy. Anyway, um, so that's DXCC for those people that just can't get enough DX. And uh, for people that are even more hardcore than that, they have these things called DXpeditions. So that's where you go to an island or territory and you set up your radio gear and you contact as many people as possible. And Uh so, for example, VK0, um, Macquarie Island is one example. So it's a tiny little patch of island, and I mean tiny. You literally camp on, set up your antennas, bunch of solar panels, batteries, and so on and so forth, and you just, you know, contact people. Now, I have never been on a expedition. I have never attempted DXCC. I did one DX competition. Some would say I lacked commitment. As far as I'm concerned, I was sane. All the other people, <laughs> totally crazy. But anyway, you know what? Hey, go for it, guys. All right, moving on. Packet Radio. Packet radio is exactly what it sounds like. Packets of data transmitted over the radio. What else can I say? So I had a, a old 9600 board TNC uh, terminal load controller connected up to an old XT, an 8086, 8088. Sorry, it was an 8088. Oh, God, that was a while ago. Anyway, I picked it up cheap. It wasn't new. Uh, it, was, it was secondhand when I bought it, but it was dirt cheap. I got it for like 25 bucks. Perfect for running packet. It would sit off in the back corner and, you know, it would go... You know, hum, and, you know, yeah. insert data noise impersonation there. Anyway, and it would tick off in the background and you could send and receive data and emails and there was a Digipeter and all that stuff, Simplex Digipeter and all that stuff. And again, that was all happening. That started happening just before the internet took off. But then when the internet took off, 
um, it killed packet because, of course, packet radio and radio frequencies, if I've got an FM channel that's only 25 kilohertz wide, I'm not going to get much more than 9,600 board. You know, 19,200, maybe, maybe. I doubt it. You're going to start bleeding across into the adjacent channels because you need more bandwidth to have more data. You know, Shannon's theorem, which I skipped. But anyway, Shannon had a theorem. Point is, packet radio was simply too slow and it just died. And I mean, it's still around, but, you know, honestly, it's... So an interesting hybrid uh, recently with the internet, though, is the IRLP, and that's the uh, Internet Radio Linking Project, where you take repeaters and using um, uh, tone calling, you can literally dial Uh up and say, I want to connect this repeater with another repeater on the other side of the world. And the internet becomes the bearer and connects the two. So rather like duplex operation locally, when the two repeaters are linked you'll start getting transmissions and receptions from the other side of the world, potentially, if they're linked together. That's really cool. It is very cool. So you can go in, you can go to the repeater with the right equipment and internet connection, and you can just go dial up. I want to talk to uh, in Calgary, which you know I did do just for the heck of it once. Uh, and I dialed in on two meter band and I was talking over two meter band to a radio, to a repeater, which then went into the internet, sprung out and Calgary came back out talking into a VE6. <clears throat> which, you know, is cool. But let's be honest, is that... <laughs> why don't we just, like, do Skype? So, you know, again, I refer you back to why amateur radio is dying. Still, it's a thing, uh, and it's cool, and there you go. Okay. QSL... So it's basically just a radio on the last mile. It's exactly, yes. That's exactly what it is. Okay. And it's honestly just... They did it because they could. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, they're, they're radio guys. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay, so QSL cards. QSL, QSL, which I said earlier, QSL is uh, acknowledge receipt. So what the heck's a QSL card? A QSL card is kind of like a postcard, but it's a physical acknowledgement that I talked to you. So let's say you and I talking on radio, and I'm saying, uh, hey, Vic, this is VK4JSP. Speaking to Vic, NN1, whatever, whatever. How you doing today? 10-4, good, buddy. 10-4. No, you, that, that's CB lingo, man. You're an amateur radio now. We don't, we don't use the 10 gods here, you know? Anyway, the point is, and I actually got yelled at once for, for letting slip a 10 code because I came from CB radio. So, yeah, anyway. Okay. <clears throat> so what will happen is at the end of that contact, you may choose to send me a QSL card. So we will exchange physical mailing addresses over the air. <laughs> Other option, of course, is that you can register in a QSL database. So if you don't like putting that stuff over the air. And a QSL database is essentially a service where I sign up, you sign up, and you can say, right, I want this to get to such and such. You send it off to a, an address at a, in a country, and it'll be forwarded on to that particular individual you know, for a fee. Or you, know, you can simply opt to, they can get your physical address and, and mail stuff to you. So anyway, okay. uh, the point is uh, that QSL cards are sort of proof. And I, and I used to collect QSL cards, and I got a couple from the States. And you know, it, it's kind of cool. And most of them from different parts of Australia. And I even print off my own QSL cards back when I was in CB Radio. And uh, when CB Radio, I, uh, my call sign that I made up for myself, because in CB Radio, you can make up whatever call sign you want. Uh, was uh, 23S150, and, and, um, which is you know, latitude and longitude of Rockhampton, essentially. 
uh, that was creative, I guess. Anyway, um, yeah, so I, I print off my own QSL cards and would and send them out to people that I made contact with. And it was kind of a nice thing. Uh, so I acknowledge receipt. Here, I have a QSL card. Anyway, all right, moving on. One of the other things in amateur radio is QRP, which is low power. And uh, the challenge in QRP is to use the minimum amount of power possible. QRP is usually defined as one watt of output power at the radio or less and with low power to make contacts over the same distance. Someone said any idiot can put a kilowatt shoebox on the back of your rig and blast it out to the States. Of course, that was not me talking. But the point is anyone can do that. I say anyone, anyone with money. But the perception is that it takes, what, skill, talent, I don't know, whatever, to operate in QRP and make the same contact. So making sure you have the lowest loss coaxial cable, the highest efficiency antenna with the highest gain possible, knowing exactly when the skip is going to come in, come out, the best polarization to use, all the best frequencies to work on, all of that stuff all goes into being able to make contacts on low power where others would fail. So QRP operation is one of those things. And uh, you, know, you put that together, for example, with DXCC. So some people have got QRP DXCC uh, certificates. So you work 100 you know, countries on low power. Anyway, I was never into QRP, although I did build a transceiver once, sort of. And I'll get to that in a minute. Okay, um, two more things to talk about, and then we'll talk about my projects, and then we're done. So Oscar. Now, not, I don't mean Oscar the Grouch. Um, I mean, oh, uh, oddly, yeah, orb, orb, <laughs> orbiting, and I don't mean some kind of an award that people win for Oscars are acting, right? Yeah. Shows how much I pay attention to that. Okay. Oscar orbiting satellite carrying amateur radio. That's what it stands for. So since the late fifties, early sixties, we've been launching satellites and some of them have carried amateur radio gear. Some of them have been entirely funded by the amateur radio community for amateur radio operators to use. And, you know, some of the packet radio, packet repeaters and so on and so forth uh, have actually been satellites. So, you know, there have been times where I, I didn't personally, but uh, a friend of mine in Rockhampton had a satellite tracker with an elevation uh, azimuth uh, rotator. And using some computer software, he was able to calculate and track onto some of the low Earth orbit satellites. And essentially, you have a, a global bulletin board. And this was before the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, actually, I'm trying to think back if this was before the internet when I first saw it. It wasn't, but it was available as a technology before the internet. And before computer software, you know, you did the tracking yourself. So there'd be tracking plots and, you know, times of day and earth location. You could figure out, you know, what location. So every every two, minute or two, you would you would tweak the antenna position, azimuth and elevation based on a set of numbers uh, in a table. And that would track the satellite for you to get maximum signal. And that was while it was doing a pass, right? It does a pass over... over. Low Earth uh-huh. orbit is uh, like 90-minute Earth orbit, typically. So that's the same sort of height as a space station. And you'll get, you know, like a... Depending on, you know, the elevation above the horizon, you'll have anywhere from a minute to, you know, 15 minutes of <clears throat> of time to upload what you need to upload. And then, of course, and after our... Before your window closes. That's right. Once the window closes, then, of course, you're out of luck. You know, if, you, if your upload didn't finish in that time, you're screwed. And then, of course, people on the other side of the world can download whatever you uploaded. So it's kind of like an orbiting, uh, an orbiting BBS in, in a sense. Very, very cool stuff. Anyway, didn't get into that myself. Really wish I could have, though. Um, but just the bar was too high in terms of expense. 
Another one, uh, I saw swimming the space station. That was another dream of mine. Never happened, uh, alas. Anyway, Moon Bounce is the last one I'm going to talk about. Jeez, I love Moon Bounce. And I love Moon Bounce because it's just such a cool idea. Now, imagine just for a second that the moon was a really good reflector. It isn't. But just imagine that it was. And it was a big mirror. Well, if you pointed a big enough antenna off of the moon, then you could actually Uh bounce your radio signal off the moon and back to the Earth again. And you'd be able to get reliable, round-the-clock communication to another part of the planet. So they call this um, EME, Earth, Moon, Earth. But Moon Bounce just sounds so much more cool. So let's just go with Moon Bounce. So I'm bouncing signals off the moon, baby. Oh, yeah. And in order to do that, <laughs> in order to do that, you need an enormous amount of power. You need an enormous array of antennas. And some of these moon bounce um, antenna arrays have got some like 24 Yagis all phased together through a, through a collinear phasing, phasing array. And they're transmitting, you know, like one kilowatt of power through that. And to receive it on the other end, it's a similar setup just to receive it. So... Mm-hmm. Yikes. I don't know what the path loss is, but it's enormous. And the tracking has to be precise because you're transmitting over such a large distance. You know, you need to make sure the antenna is perfectly aligned with the moon. Yikes. And that's why, you know, when they did the, you know, signals from to and from the moon, that's why they had this massive radio telescope in parks in New South Wales that brought the signals back. If you've ever seen a movie called The Dish, it's an Australian movie, but um, still very cool. I, I enjoyed it. And it's a bit, you know, bit dicky in parts but generally it's very good uh about the story of um you know the the radio telescope in parks in new south wales uh which i've been to oh yeah and uh how it used to how it picked up the signals from the television signal signals from the moon and relayed them around the world uh when uh, first steps on the moon uh the anyway so uh that's why they need a big parabolic dish because you know hey it's hard to pick up those signals it's a long way away uh, again, another facet of amateur radio I never really got into. Moon bounce. Okay. So, my projects. Oh, dear. Now, I've built uh, so many antennas, it's not funny. But i tell you what. A friend of mine, uh, Sean, uh, is an avid FM, bro- um, FM broadcast radio listener. And there's another uh-huh. effect I didn't talk about. It's not ionospheric propagation. It's something called ducting. So, what you get is a, an effect at certain frequencies between about 50 megahertz and about seven 800 megahertz, where you're going to get uh, what they call tropospheric ducting. Uh, it's caused by a temperature inversion layer. And the idea is that uh, because of an inversion in temperatures, that in temperature inversion and turbulence that's created uh, causes the radio signals to bend at a higher frequency than normal. So rather than punching out to the ionosphere, and then punching out into space, they bend back enough and they ricochet down this little duct, hence they call it ducting, the tropospheric duct, the the barrier between the two temperature layers in the atmosphere. And those ducts often open up all all over the place. Usually they'll open up between places that, you know, there's no one living, so you don't know about it. But when they open up between places that there are lots of FM radio signals, for example, you'll sometimes hear. So, for example, in Brisbane, you know, know, we would have, uh, there was like B105 and Triple M, radio stations, and you could pick them up in Rockhampton if the tropospheric ducting was in. Now, to pick those up better, you could buy generic, you know, FM radio log periodic from Dick Smith Electronics or, you know, Radio Shack, wherever, right? But unfortunately, Uh they were designed for 88 to 108 megahertz, which is the FM broadcast band. And unfortunately, their gain, therefore, is not as high. 
So Sean asked, because uh, he knew that I was into antennas, if I could design him an antenna that would give him the highest amount of gain in the sweet spot, which was between, it was a one megahertz range, uh, not a Yagi, but a log periodic, a high gain log periodic for a much narrower frequency band. So that, that to date has been my favorite antenna that I've designed and built uh, for the FM broadcast band, specifically to pick up the two favorite radio stations of his from Brisbane, from Rockhampton, uh, which is about 600 kilometers away, which is about 400 miles away. So that, that remains my favorite antenna, despite the fact that after a while, a big fat bird stood on it and snapped some of the elements. But never mind that. Next, the, ne- the re- version two of John's Log Periodic for FM broadcast would have had much thicker insulators on it. I'm just saying, stronger ones, you know, because it's not just about, phys- it's about physical strength as well as gain, which I learned the hard way. As I yeah. one day showed up at his place and saw one of my elements was sagging down to the side and been snapped. <sighs> it was a sad day. Anyhow, all right. Bummer. All right, next. Uh, I built so many wire antennas, it ain't funny. But one of them that I did build out of recovered wire from a... Oh, dear. Picked up some surplus transformer wire, which is essentially just coated coated copper wire. So it's coated in a clear lacquer. They use it for winding on transformers. Anyway, so picked some of that up cheap, and uh, as you do. And uh, anyway, I turned it into a wire Yagi. So most Yagis are made out of physical like tubes of aluminium because it's much stronger. But I made one out of wire. <laughs> I t- because I didn't I couldn't afford the Just because. I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to build. Um you know, I was a kid. I was like you know, sixteen, fifteen, yeah. sixteen years old. I didn't have money to build or or expertise. Later on I got better at it. The FM broadcast Yagi I built when I was what, nineteen, I think, something like that. Um, you know, the, the wire Yagi was when I was still, you know, mid teenager and yeah, it worked okay. Fixed direction, of course, cause it was strung up in the trees and you know, so on, but anyway, it worked sort of, hey, anyway, um, I'd like to say my, uh, uh, sorry, I'll talk about my long wire then. I did an inverted L long wire once and in order to match that, I pulled an old, um, capacitor, an air capacitor out of an old TV set, valve TV set, TV set. And the the worst part of it was that being young and stupid at the time, didn't realize that RF energy is kind of dangerous if you're not careful. And this particular thing here on the front of the TV, it had a Bakelite uh, knob, which would, had a shaft that connected into the actual shaft of the capacitor. So as you, as you change the channel on the, on the television, it would change the capacitance, that would change the frequency, that would change the TV channel. That was the way it used to be done in the old, the good old days. Here's the problem, right? Is that I'd taken that Bakelite connector off, so it was now exposed. The whole thing was a one conductive piece of metal with two sets of insulated plates, like sets of fingers that go in and out of each other. Uh-huh. So I had keyed this thing up because, of course, you can't measure reflected power without putting power into the antenna. So I was I was measuring and tuning it to try and get the uh, standing wave ratio of the antenna down to tune down to an acceptable level that I wasn't going to blow up the final transistors on my radio. So what did I do? Reached out with my right hand to tune it. And that's at the moment where the RF energy jumped across the webbing in my right hand and blew a chunk out of my hand. Wasn't huge, but ow, ow, yeah. That hurt a lot. So that's when I discovered the the tried and true way. Uh, My patented method after that was to get a wooden clothes peg and put that on the thing so that I didn't (laughs) blow a hole in my webbing. Anyway, never mind that. Like I said, I learned things the hard way. 
Okay, finally, um, I'd like to call it my crowning achievement, but let's be honest, that only half worked. So it's my crowning half achievement in amateur radio was I built my own transceiver. <laughs> the design was the very popular design by a radio amateur called NN1G. Well, that's his call sign anyway. And everyone called it the NN1G transceiver. Designed for 20 meter band. The receiver mostly worked. It didn't tune across the entire range. Um, it was a dual conversion superheterodyne, I believe, from memory. And the transmitter, though, uh, yeah, it needed a couple of toroids. And the problem with the toroids was that um, I had to get the specific toroids with, the specific, with the specific characteristics, and the design called for ordering from DigiKey. And at the time, I couldn't get DigiKey stuff because that was in the States, and I was not. And they didn't order overseas, so I was stuck. And I tried some different toroids that I could source locally in Australia. Turns out they were not exactly the right... Uh, uh, characteristics. So the trans transmitter po portion never worked. But I etched the circuit boards. I, I sold it all myself, bought all the components, assembled it myself. The receiver mostly worked to transmit and never worked. But still, that was my crowning achievement in terms of uh, physical hardware. I, uh, However, my future in software was somewhat a little bit sort of foretold at one point because I had a uh, an ICOM IC706 radio and uh, I built a very simple um, TTL converter uh, to plug into my the DB9 port, serial port, on my computer at the time, which is a 8386, whatever the hell. Anyway, and so I'm plugging this thing in, and it'd be great if I could talk to the radio and use some software to set frequencies. It's had 100 memories. So what I did is I wrote mm -hmm. some software. It was based in DOS. It was written in uh, Borland um, uh, C. Yeah. And um, it was uh, it used a rolling bar menu, so two dimensional rolling bar menu, so you know all done through the keyboard, but also had mouse support. And uh, I used direct interrupts. I didn't use any of the libraries because I just like doing things the hard way anyway. And uh, yeah, it uh, it won second prize in the home homebrew competition, and that was in ninety. I forget ninety seven, ninety eight. I forget something like that. Anyway. So, That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool, actually. And most of the homebrew entrants um, in the amateur radio competition locally were, of course, you know, hardware, like amplifiers, low-noise amplifiers, you know, and transceivers that worked, <laughs> unlike mine. And, um, you know, but mine was different. Mine was software, and no one had entered software before. So I honestly think it won second prize more out of novelty than anything else, rather than being any good. I never sold it as a product, although I probably should have. Uh, but within a year or so of mine um, winning that prize, someone had released a Windows version, which was, let's face it, a heck of a lot more user-friendly. So, um, yeah, mine kind of never really saw the light of day. I don't even have screenshots of it anymore. I have the original source code somewhere, I think. But anyway, I should put it up as a, yeah, as a, yeah, this was useful once, Hall of Fame or something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. And honestly, that's it. I could talk more, I could talk a lot more, and honestly, I'm not going to because, well, let's face it, I uh, don't know how many people care, but here you go, there you go. Someone had asked for me to do an episode about um, my background with amateur radio and radio in general, so there you go, now you know, and um, uh, hopefully some of that's been interesting, but honestly, bottom line is that as a, as a hobby, it is dying, and whilst it set me on the path that it did into electrical engineering and further on into control system engineering, which is what I'm doing now. Um, the internet is so much easier in so many ways. Mobile phones so much easier in so many ways. And frankly, writing software for that stuff is is, is just as cool 
and you know pushes a lot of those sorts of buttons that amateur radio used to push for me. So I still feel like I'm not missing out uh, in that respect. Yeah. So. Yeah, so so that's it, and uh, I see we have a couple of um, questions um, for the Q and A session that'll be happening after the show. So stick around after the music, after you hear the music, uh, if you've listened to the podcast offline, and um, you'll hear that. So stick around for the Q and A. So um, yeah, anyway, if you'd like to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi. That's J O H N C H I D G E Y, and check out my writing at TechDistortion.com. If you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, and that's where you'll also find show notes for the episode under Podcasts Pragmatic. You can also also follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements, like when we're going live, for example, and any other related materials that might crop up. I'd like to thank my co-host Vic Hudson for joining me once again. And uh, Vic, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, they can follow me or find me on Twitter at VicHudson1. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank Audible for sponsoring the show. Please make sure you visit this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic for your free audiobook. I'd also like to thank lynda.com, a new sponsor for sponsoring Pragmatic. If there's anything you'd like to learn about and you're looking for an easy and affordable way to learn, then lynda.com can help you out. Instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business software, web development, graphic design, and lots more. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to get a free seven-day trial. If you've ever wanted to learn something new, what are you waiting for? And that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks again, Vic. Yep, no problem. So, uh, let's go through the Q&A, Q&A, Q&A. What do we got here? Okay, so Russ, you're asking about... So, Russell, Russ Newcomer uh, in the chat room asks, can you talk about antenna sizes and signal reception? As in, if you have a bigger antenna, is reception necessarily better? Answer is yes. Bigger is better because you're capturing more RF energy. And there, there's a the theorem, the reciprocal theorem of antennas such that if I design an antenna to have maximal gain in transmission, it will have maximal reception uh, as well. <clears throat> so let's say uh, one of the things I didn't talk about was beam width. Uh, the beam width is the, the angle from the center point of your antenna to the two points, uh, the two 3dB power points on your, on your plot. So you're plotting the maximum amount of gain uh, around your antenna and the maximum gain is in the forward direction usually is the front of the lobe. But as you move to the left and the right of that lobe, eventually the power will drop off to, to 3 dB less than the maximum. They call that your half power points or your 3 dB points. That angle is your beam width. Uh, 
So when you quote an angle's um, beam width, it'll be, let's say it's, I don't know, 25 degrees. So there's 25 degrees off of, of, of basically, so that's what, uh, 12 and a half degrees each side of center where you're going to get approximately maximum gain. So uh, the idea is that, yes, the bigger the antenna you go, the better your signal reception is going to be. Hence, things like Arecibo. However, one of the things I didn't talk about, uh, didn't even think about talking about until just now, is the other idea, which is creating a virtually big antenna through phasing. Now, phased arrays do this, and I did, I guess, talk about this when we talk about moon bounce, but the idea is that you'll get, let's say, you'll get 20 antennas, and each of them will feed in through what they call a phasing harness. And the idea of a phasing harness is that each of the connections from each of the antennas is exactly, perfectly the same length. All of the antennas are exactly, perfectly the same, matched exactly, perfectly the same. And they all come into a common feed point such that all of the signals coalesce and they essentially, um, they're all in phase. So with signals that are in phase, of course, they, they're additive, they amplify. So you get more signal reception. So, but the phasing harnesses have to be very precisely made and everything has to be all very well calculated for that to work. Anyway, so phasing harnesses and all that, it's all, all really cool stuff. And the macro scale of this is if you look at radio telescopes, there's uh, one, the, I think the first one is the very long base array in New Mexico. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of these that are spread up all around the world now. They're becoming quite very popular in radio, radio, radio astronomy is that each of those antennas essentially is a smaller parabolic dish, but you've got lots of them. And they'll spread out in the X and Y direction. And the idea is that you can then add all of the signals together to, to essentially create a similar capture area to an enormous, um, enormous virtual radio antenna. So that's the same idea. And uh, you can move the different antennas along a bunch of railroad tracks um, to position them to change the size of the antenna. So larger area, different gain characteristics, depending upon what you're trying to listen to. Most phased arrays are fixed However, not, not adjustable, but in radio astronomy, you're going to go to that sort of trouble, you're going to make them adjustable. There'll be a few that aren't, but you know most of them should be mobile. Anyway, uh, follow-up question, Russ asks, phasing harnesses are not a home option, right? Well, sure, why not? Absolutely you can. I mean, the laws of physics are laws of physics. If you want to, you want to you know, phase a couple of antennas together, none's stopping you. Um, in fact, I have seen some people that live in uh, bad TV re signal reception areas uh, do that. So I've seen uh, multiple Yagis and you'll see them stacked horizontally and vertically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you'll see like two or three or four antennas either in, an, in a configuration. So I've seen houses that have got four Yagis, four, well, they're, they're log Yagis, um, four TV antennas that have got, gone through a phasing harness into the, into the house just to pick up, you know, because they're in a fringe area. You know, and, and if you want to pick up TV, that's your option. So, yeah. you know, it's... Much less common these days, of course, with you know, with cable television and in Australia, you know, like you know, Foxtel and whatever. So you got satellite TV, and as long as you've got a view of the sky, you've got satellite TV, right? So you know, shrug. But anyway, it's not it's not a question; it's more of a statement. But yeah, amateur radio is treated like public access television in the US. Yes, yeah, it is a bit. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So a lot of people like turn their nose up at it, but you know, in the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> you want the radio guy around. <laughs> uh, I built an antenna for my HD TV out of old clothes hangers. Absolutely. Why not? And it works better than the antenna that I bought from the store. Well, yeah, it, that's the thing is that television antennas are funny beasts because a rabbit ears television antenna is so heavily loaded 
uh, you know, and when I say antenna loading, what I'm talking about is that you'll load up with an inductor and a capacitor or, and, or, or inductors and capacitors, depending on the match. And what that does is it reduces the physical length that the antenna needs to be because, well, you're, quote-unquote, you're loading it, right? So the idea is that um, electrically it appears longer than it really physically is. And that's great for shrinking antennas and making them tiny. It's terrible for efficiency. So if you want to have an efficient antenna, rabbit ears are not your friend. Rabbit ears are only useful in high signal reception areas. So if you're out in the sticks, you need an external antenna free from your house, free from the walls, free from the roof um, for high gain in order to get performance. That's just reality. So what's in these new... uh, I'm I'm sure you guys got them there too. Um, If you go to the store, you see now they sell digital TV antennas and it basically just looks like a little UFO disc. Okay, so what that's got in it is what's referred to as a low. Is it just a coil of wire? It is, but it's got a, it's it's loaded and it's got a low noise amplifier in it, and sometimes it has an active matching circuit. So the idea is that, excuse me, some of them will detect the frequency specifically that you're on, and they'll tune themselves to that frequency so that you get the best possible efficiency at the frequency you're trying to tune into. Got it. Other ones, far more commonly, are simply a low noise amplifier. So the idea is that they will take the raw signal and they will amplify it before it goes into the coaxial cable into your into your TV set or your now, radio. The downside of that would be it's going to amplify noise and all, right? That's right. But the low noise okay. amplifiers, you know, hence the, as the name suggests, and LNAs are designed... <clears throat> LNAs are very common in microwave transmission. And the reason is that you want to boost this... You want to give the signal a kick before it goes into your coax. You're going to lose power in your coax. So far better to amplify it before it goes into the transmission line where it's going to pick up noise and lose power than after. Because all a radio receiver is or a TV receiver is, is an amplifier. It it amplifies the received signal to a level which it can strip off the data and then display it, you know, or present it in audible form, like through a speaker. So ultimately, ultimately it's all about the sensitivity. And if you have a good low noise amplifier at the end, as close as possible to the antenna, then you're going to improve your chances of picking up the weakest possible signal, which is why in radio telescopes, they will have um, the lowest low noise amplifiers you can get, which is uh, usually cooled by liquid nitrogen, because what you want to do is you want to reduce uh, the amount of molecular movement in the actual receiver in the low noise amplifier, because if you reduce that amount of power, you end up uh, with the cleanest possible, sorry, if you reduce the, the temperature, you reduce molecular movement, that reduces the, the Gaussian noise that you get in the amplifier. Obviously, that's all so ridiculously over the top, it ain't funny, um, unless you want to have a really, really, really low noise amplifier with a bunch of liquid nitrogen you've got to keep topping up, which I never did, and I don't think anyone would ever do. Well, maybe there'd be some nutters that would do it. I mean, I say nutters, mass survivalists. <laughs> and I mean, and if you were a survivalist with a low noise amplifier with liquid nitrogen, how the hell are you going to make your liquid nitrogen once the world goes to crap? I mean, you're just not, are you? I mean, how are you going to do that? You're going to have your home nitrogen factory? Of course you're not. Eh, whatever. Well, you got to figure this out, John. We're counting on you for the zombie apocalypse. <sighs> I sold my radio gear. Were you listening? God. <laughs> I'm not licensed anymore. I'm a has I don't I'm a think has-been. that'll matter at that point. No, it won't matter at that point. <laughs> I'm a has-been. I'm a radio has-been. <laughs> 